Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you all tonight to the third annual Herbert W. Vaughan Lecture. I'm Don Drakeman. I'm the chairman of the Advisory Council of the James Madison Program in American Institutions and Ideals here at Princeton. Uh, and it's my pleasure uh, to be able to uh, introduce to you, uh, before we get to the speaker, uh, actually Herbert W. Vaughan himself. Uh, he is uh, here tonight to join us in this exciting lecture. Uh, he has been a founding member, great benefactor, and wise counselor of the James Madison program from its very beginning, uh, and has made uh, many great contributions personally, uh, uh, directly and indirectly to Princeton University, despite the fact that he, uh, Herbert Wiley Vaughan, is a Harvard man through and through. So <laughs> I, I, all of us Princetonians, both the university and the town, uh, please let us all give a very warm round of applause for Wiley and Tom. Wiley Vaughn has endowed this lecture and has uh, asked that each Vaughn lecture commence with a statement that he has written, and I will read that uh, on his behalf uh, right now, if that's all right with you, Wiley. Thank you. I, Herbert W. Vaughn, have endowed this lecture at Princeton University to promote and advance understanding of the founding principles and core doctrines of American constitutionalism. What Alexander Hamilton said to the Americans of his day remains true for Americans of every generation. I quote, it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. In my judgment, writes Mr. Vaughan, the Constitution of the United States is the greatest practical achievement of political science. It is a testament to the extraordinary gifts of creativity, prudence, and high-mindedness possessed by the founders of our nation. May you be guided and inspired by their genius as you meet the challenges of the present day. Thank you again, Wiley. And now I would like to uh, introduce uh, someone who I think you all know, Professor Robert George, McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence uh, and the Director of the James Madison Program. Robert. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and let me add my voice uh, to Don Drakeman's in thanking Herbert W. Vaughan not only for endowing uh, this wonderful uh, lecture, but for his many, many uh, contributions, material and moral, to the uh, Madison program. Uh, I also want to take this uh, opportunity to thank Don Drakeman as well. Don is our uh, chairman of our advisory council, has been a real leader in the Madison program, uh, and I'm extraordinarily uh, grateful for everything that Don has done for us. Well, it is an honor uh, to uh, welcome to the podium, as our Vaughn lecturer, uh, Professor James McPherson. We have been blessed in the program over the six-year uh, life we've had so far 
with many eminent and distinguished lecturers, none more eminent uh, or distinguished than Professor McPherson. After earning his uh, PhD at Johns Hopkins University, Professor McPherson came to Princeton as an instructor in history back in 1962, and he retired in 2004 as the George Henry Davis, class of 86, uh, professor of American history. It was not this most recent 86, the one before that. <laughs> he is the author of 15 books and editor of almost a dozen more. He won the Pulitzer Prize in history for his magnificent volume, which I know is known to many, many of you in this room, Battle Cry of Freedom, the Civil War uh, Era, just an extraordinary uh, work of scholarship. Uh, he also won the Lincoln Prize, and that was in 1998, for his book, For Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. He had the very great honor of uh, being the National Endowment for the Humanities Jefferson Lecturer uh, in the year 2000, and he has served as president of the Society of American uh, Historians and president of the American Historical Association. He is currently working on a book about Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, and we'll be hearing quite a lot about President Lincoln from Professor McPherson this morning. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. I give you James McPherson. Well, in addition to expressing my appreciation for Professor George's generous introduction and for your warm welcome, I also want to offer my thanks to Herbert W. Vaughan for sponsoring and supporting these lectures on America's founding principles, which is giving me an opportunity this evening to speak to you about an issue of historical importance and perhaps also of some contemporary relevance as well. No doubt we'll get into that during the question period. <laughs> on the 4th of July, 1864, Senator Zachariah Chandler of Michigan hovered anxiously near Abraham Lincoln as the president signed last-minute bills passed by the just-adjourned session of Congress. When Lincoln, when Lincoln put aside the Wade Davis bill that stipulated stringent terms for reconstruction of Confederate states, including the abolition of slavery therein, Chandler urged the president to sign the bill. Its most important provision, said the senator, is the one prohibiting slavery in the reconstructed states. Lincoln replied, that is the point on which I doubt the authority of Congress to act. Chandler was indignant. Alluding to the Emancipation Proclamation, he said, it is no more than you have done yourself. Quite true, Lincoln responded. But I conceive that I may, in an emergency, do things on military grounds which cannot be done constitutionally by Congress. This breathtaking assertion of presidential prerogative left Chandler almost speechless. It should not have. From the outset of the Civil War, Lincoln had exercised unprecedented powers as commander-in-chief. Two years before this conversation with Chandler, the president had told a delegation of anti-slavery clergymen from Chicago that he could, if he judged it necessary, proclaim emancipation in Confederate states because, as commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy in time of war, I suppose I have a right to take any measure which may best subdue the enemy. Whether the measures he took exceeded his constitutional authority was much debated at the time and is still controversial today. 
What remains certain, however, is that Lincoln vastly expanded presidential war powers and established precedents invoked by several of his successors in later wars. Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution states simply, the President shall be Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the United States. But the Constitution does not define the functions and powers of the President as Commander-in-Chief. In Federalist Number 69, Alexander Hamilton tried to reassure opponents of the Constitution who feared executive tyranny that the Commander-in-Chief power as Hamilton put it, would amount to nothing more than the supreme command and direction of the military forces as first general and admiral of the nation. Wartime presidents James Madison in the War of 1812 and James K. Polk in the Mexican War did not go much beyond that limited function. Nevertheless, the brevity and vagueness of the Constitution's specification of presidential powers in contrast to its detailed listing of congressional powers and of limitations on congressional powers, bothered a lot of observers. In 1840, a Virginia jurist and future Secretary of State, Abel Upshur, deplored what he called the loose and unguarded terms in which the powers and duties of the President are pointed out in the Constitution. In regard to the executive, Upshur wrote, the Constitutional Convention seems to have studiously selected such loose and general expressions as would enable the President, by implications and constructions, either to neglect his duties or to enlarge his powers. In a case growing out of the Mexican War, the Supreme Court ruled that the President, as Commander-in-Chief, is authorized to employ the Army and Navy, in the words of the decision, in the manner he may deem most effectual to harass and conquer and subdue the enemy. But, the court added, this was a power limited to purely military matters. Whether Lincoln was familiar with this decision is unknown, but his actions as commander-in-chief went well beyond the narrow definition of purely military matters that the court intended. The Constitution restricts to Congress the power to declare war. Yet one of Lincoln's first acts after the firing on Fort Sumter was to proclaim a blockade of Confederate ports. In effect, that proclamation was a declaration of war, and both Congress and the Supreme Court subsequently endorsed it as such. During those hectic days in the spring of 1861, Lincoln also preempted congressional authority to raise and support armies. His proclamation of April 15th calling on the states for 75,000 90-day militia to suppress the insurrection was, to be sure, based on congressional legislation on the Militia Act of 1795. But on May 3rd, a couple of weeks later, Lincoln issued an executive order calling for 43,000 three-year volunteers for the Army and also increasing the size of the regular Army and Navy by 40,000 men. Both of these actions were in apparent violation of the Constitution, which grants Congress exclusively exclusive authority to raise and support armies and to provide and maintain a navy.
And because Lincoln believed, rightly so, I think, that the federal bureaucracy in those early days of the war was still infested with Confederate sympathizers, he ordered Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase to advance $2 million to three private citizens in New York to purchase arms and vessels. And that order directly contravened Article I, Section 9 of the Constitution, which stipulates that no money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations made by law. Lincoln made no secret of these actions, which he justified on the grounds, as he put it, that the existing exigencies demand immediate and adequate measures for the protection of the national constitution and the national union. A year later, in response to charges of dictatorship, Lincoln insisted that back in those early days of the war, as he put it, it became necessary for me to choose whether using only the existing means, agencies, and processes which Congress had provided, I should let the government fall at once into ruin, or whether, availing myself of the broader powers conferred by the Constitution in cases of insurrection, I would make an effort to save it with all of its blessings for the present age and for posterity. On that occasion, Lincoln did not define these broader powers conferred by the Constitution. But at other times, he cited the Commander-in-Chief Clause and also the constitutional mandate that the President shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Later Presidents have also invoked these vague provisions to justify far-reaching executive actions, in some cases drawing on Lincolnian precedents. Lincoln believed, as he put it, that by these and other similar measures taken in that crisis of April and May 1861, some of which were without any authority of law, the government was saved from overthrow. Lincoln pointed out that he had taken an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. This larger duty overrode his obligation to heed any lesser specific provision in the Constitution, or as a modern constitutional scholar expressed it, a part cannot be supreme over the whole to the injury or destruction of the whole. Lincoln's pro proclamation of May 3rd calling for three-year volunteers and increasing the regular Army and Navy stated that he would seek retroactive congressional approval of these measures when Congress met in special session that he had called for July 4th, 1861. That special session of the new Congress could not meet earlier because of the timetable of elections and congressional sessions in that area, era. No federal law then mandated a single date for congressional elections. Most states held such elections in the fall of even-numbered years as today. But the first regular session of a new Congress did not then meet until December of the following year, that is, 13 months later. Seven northern and border states held congressional elections in the spring of odd-numbered years, in this case, 1861, making it impossible for a special session to be scheduled before July. So in the emergency caused by the attack on Fort Sumter, which of course took place in April, Lincoln therefore had to appropriate some legislative as well as executive functions, or at least so he claimed. 
When Congress did convene on July 4th, Lincoln sent a message explaining what he had done and why. After summarizing the events leading up to the firing on Fort Sumter, the President explained that this attack left him with no choice, in his words, but to call out the war power of the government and so to resist force employed for its destruction by force for its preservation. In the first draft of this message, Lincoln had written military power to call out the military power of the government. But then he changed it in the final draft to war power. Whether he did so because war power seems stronger is unclear, but perhaps quite likely. Later in the message, he again used the phrase. He had employed, he said, the war power as the only alternative to yielding the existence of the government. The Constitution makes no explicit mention of war power. Those words are not in the Constitution. The closest it comes is the clause that authorizes Congress to declare war. Both the phrase and the idea of presidential war powers seems to have been Lincoln's own creation. In effect, by invoking an executive war power, Lincoln preempted the prerogative of Congress to declare war. Two years later, the Supreme Court upheld Lincoln's position by the narrowest of margins, five to four, in the prize cases. These cases grew out of the Navy's seizure of ships trying to evade the blockade that Lincoln had declared in April 1861. Merchants whose ships and cargo were captured argued that because only Congress can declare war, the blockade was illegal before Congress in July declared the existence of hostilities. But a majority of the court, a very slim majority, ruled that a state of war, especially a civil war, can exist without a formal declaration of war. The president, the court said, has a duty to resist force with force. Therefore, the blockade and related war powers exercised by Lincoln were within his authority as commander-in-chief. The court did not rule on the other measures that Lincoln had carried out before Congress met, but Congress had already taken care of that. In his message to the special session, Lincoln conceded that his executive orders calling for volunteers and increasing the size of the regular army and Navy may not have been, as he put it, strictly legal, but they were, he went on to say, a public necessity that he trusted Congress would, as he put it, readily ratify. Congress did so, passing almost unanimously a resolution that, in its words, approved and in all respects legalized and made valid all the acts, proclamations, and orders of the President of the United States respecting the Army and Navy as if they had been done under the previous express authority and direction of the Congress. Despite congressional and court endorsements of Lincoln's actions, though, opposition to presidential tyranny was strong and grew stronger as the war escalated in scope and severity. The mildest of epithets provoked by Lincoln's most controversial uses of his war powers, suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and emancipation, the mildest of epithets provoked by these measures were despot, tyrant, dictator. 
After a mob in Baltimore attacked the 6th Massachusetts Infantry as it passed through the city on its way to defend Washington in April 1861, other Confederate sympathizers in Maryland tore down telegraph wires, burned railroad bridges, linking the capital to the outside world. In response, Lincoln suspended the writ of habeas corpus between Philadelphia and Washington. Subsequent presidential orders, several of them, expanded the areas where the writ was suspended until a proclamation of September 24, 1862 suspended it throughout the whole country, north as well as south, and for good measure authorized martial law and trials by, by, by military courts of, as Lincoln's order put it, all rebels and insurgents, their aiders and abettors, and all persons discouraging volunteer enlistments, resisting militia drafts, or guilty of any disloyal practice, affording aid and comfort to rebels against the authority of the United States. Under these orders, thousands of civilians were arrested and detained without trial for varying lengths of time. Most of them in the border slave states and even in the occupied Confederacy, where, of course, guerrillas and Confederates themselves were numerous. But even in the North, a number of anti-war copperheads were arrested and several were tried and convicted by military tribunals for draft resistance, trading with the enemy, sabotage, or other alleged pro-Confederate activities. No actions by the Lincoln administration, except perhaps emancipation, generated greater hostility than these apparent violations of civil liberties. And one of the first arrests under the initial order to suspend the writ produced a confrontation between the President of the United States and the Chief Justice of the United States. John Merriman was a wealthy Maryland landowner and lieutenant in a secessionist cavalry company that had been active in tearing down telegraph lines and burning bridges to cut off Washington. Merriman was arrested confined at Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor. He petitioned the Federal Circuit Court for a writ of habeas corpus. The senior judge in that circuit was none other than Chief Justice Roger Brooke Taney, who issued a writ ordering the commanding officer at the fort to bring Merriman before the court to show cause for his arrest. The officer refused, citing Lincoln's suspension of the writ. Tawney immediately delivered a ruling denying the President's right to do that. The Constitution states, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. Now at issue here was not whether the writ could be suspended. Clearly, there was a rebellion going on, and that came under the constitutional provision. That wasn't the issue, but the issue was who could suspend it. Because this clause is placed in Article I of the Constitution, which deals with congressional powers, Tawney insisted, citing numerous precedents, that only Congress could do so. Tawney had no power to enforce that ruling, which Lincoln refused to obey. As author of the notorious Dred Scott decision, Tawney's opinions carry little weight in Republican circles. 
Lincoln had challenged the Dred Scott decision, and he challenged this ruling as well. In his message to the special session of Congress on July 4th, the president included an elaborate defense of his suspension of the writ. He noted, without mentioning Tawney's name or position, that he, the president, had been admonished that one who is sworn to take care that the laws be faithfully executed should not himself violate them. But he had not violated the law, Lincoln insisted. Confederates in Virginia and secessionists in Maryland had surrounded and cut off the Capitol, whose capture would have, been, would have brought the downfall of the government. Surely that meant the constitutional requirement for suspension of the writ. Now it is insisted that Congress, not the executive, is vested with this power, Lincoln acknowledged. But the Constitution itself is silent as to which or who is to exercise the power. And as the provision was plainly made for a dangerous emergency, it cannot be believed the framers of the government intended that in every case the danger should run its course until Congress should be called together, the very assembling of which might be prevented, as was intended in this case, by the rebellion. But even if this were not true, even if Tawney was right that the president, that, that only Congress had this right, Lincoln had a second string to his bow. He claimed a higher constitutional duty to do whatever was necessary to preserve, protect, and defend the nation and to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. The whole of the laws which were to be faithfully executed were being resisted and failing of execution in nearly one-third of the states. He said, must they be allowed to finally fail of execution because some single law should, to a very limited extent, be violated? To state the question more directly, are all the laws but one, that is the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, are all the laws but one to go unexecuted and the government itself go to pieces lest that one be violated? Well, here we have the core of Lincoln's concept of his war powers as commander-in-chief. That is, his supreme constitutional duty was to preserve the nation by winning the war. Any measures necessary to achieve that purpose overrode lesser constitutional restrictions. Lincoln was also a master of metaphors designed to make abstruse concepts clear to laymen. And in this case, he used the analogy of a surgeon who amputates a limb in order to save a life. Looking back in 1864 to those events of three years earlier, Lincoln asked, was it possible to lose the nation and yet preserve the Constitution? By general law, life and limb must be protected. Yet often a limb must be amputated to save a life but a life is never wisely given to save a limb. I felt that measures otherwise unconstitutional might become lawful by becoming indispensable to the preservation of the Constitution through preservation of the nation. Most of those who were arrested and kept in what Lincoln once called preventive detention under suspension of the writ of habeas corpus were released after several weeks, including John Merriman, or several months when they took an oath of allegiance to the United States. Attorney General Edward Bates and two of the nation's foremost lawyers 
wrote treatises upholding the legality of, Le of Lincoln's actions. The Supreme Court never ruled on the constitutionality of Lincoln's suspension of the writ. Remember, Tawney's ruling on Merriman was filed in circuit court, but the whole court itself never ruled on that issue. In March 1863, Congress finally enacted legislation giving the president explicit authority to do what he had been doing for almost two years. But in the meantime, Lincoln's proclamation of September 24, 1862, declaring martial law and authorizing military trials of civilians generated a new uproar. On May 5, 1863, Union soldiers, in the middle of the night, arrested Clement L. Vallandigham at his home in Ohio. The leading northern copperhead, Vallandigham had repeatedly attacked the Lincoln administration and the war, calling for a ceasefire and negotiations with the enemy. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and the recent passage by Congress of a conscription law had intensified copperhead attacks. And reverses to Union arms in the winter and spring of 1863 had caused widespread demoralization in the North and in the Army that imperiled the government's efforts to carry on the war. In that climate of opinion, Vallandigham's rhetoric seemed a genuine threat to the cause of Union. A military court convicted him of uttering disloyal sentiments and opinions with the object and purpose of weakening the power of the government to suppress an unlawful rebellion. And this tribunal sentenced Vallandigham to a military prison for the rest of the war. These proceedings produced cries of outrage by Northern Democrats and expressions of anxiety by even some Republicans. Governor Horatio Seymour of New York denounced the arrest and trial as cowardly, brutal, infamous. It is not merely a step toward revolution, it is revolution. It establishes military despotism. If it is upheld, our liberties are overthrown. Lincoln had not known about Vallandigham's arrest ahead of time. He was surprised and embarrassed by the action of General Burnside, who had, given, who had ordered that arrest. But Lincoln decided that he must uphold Burnside and the military tribunal, which had been established under his own proclamation of the previous September. When Vallandigham's attorneys applied for a writ of habeas corpus, the circuit judge in Cincinnati denied it on the grounds that the president had, suppressed, had suspended the writ. In an effort to quell the uproar and to tarnish Vallandigham's martyrdom, Lincoln commuted the sentence from imprisonment to banishment to the Confederacy. If you like the, the, your friend so well, I'll send you there. <laughs> Federal troops escorted Vallandigham under flag of truce to Confederate lines in Tennessee. Vallandigham eventually slipped out of the Confederacy on a blockade runner and settled in Windsor, Canada, from where he conducted his campaign for governor of Ohio. <laughs> Not the last time in American history, by the way, where somebody would conduct a political campaign from jail or from, from exile. Vallandigham went down to defeat a decisive defeat in October 1863 after Union military fortunes had taken a turn for the better. 
Meanwhile, Vallandigham's lawyers appealed his case to the Supreme Court, arguing that the trial of a civilian by a military court outside the war zone when civil courts were open was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court, on this occasion, ducked that issue by claiming lack of appellate jurisdiction over military courts. Nevertheless, the Vlanningham case became a cause celeb for Democrats. Party leaders in New York and Ohio addressed formal protests to the president in the form of resolutions charging him with a palpable violation of the Constitution that abrogates the right of the people to assemble and discuss the affairs of government, the liberty of speech and of the press, the right of trial by jury, and the privilege of habeas corpus aimed at the rights of every citizen of the North. These resolutions gave Lincoln an opening to make his case to the Northern people. On several occasions during the war, he used the medium of public letters for that purpose, just as a modern president uses televised speeches or news conferences. On June 12th and 23rd, Lincoln addressed such letters to the New York and Ohio Democrats who had passed these resolutions condemning him. Lincoln denied that Vallandigham had been arrested quote, for no other reason than words addressed to a public meeting. On the contrary, he said, Vallandigham's anti-war activities were part of a broader effort by Confederate agents and their Copperhead allies to undermine the draft and to encourage desertions from the Army. Several enrollment officers for the draft had recently been murdered by draft resistance, resistors in states like Indiana, Illinois, Vallandigham, Lincoln said, was damaging the army upon the existence and vigor of which the life of the nation depends. Lincoln then posed a rhetorical question that turned out to be the most powerful and famous illustration of his point. Noting that the official punishment for desertion was death, and by the way, Lincoln spent many hours reviewing such cases from the army and finding reasons to pardon deserters or commute their sentences. But the official punishment for desertion was death. And so Lincoln asked rhetorically, must I shoot a simple-minded soldier boy who deserts while I must not touch the hair of a wily agitator who induces him to desert? That, more than all the constitutional arguments, made an impact. Lincoln went on to say that this clear, flagrant, and giant rebellion was precisely the, con the contingency anticipated by the framers of the Constitution when they wrote the clause permitting the suspension of habeas corpus. To make the case that wartime suspension, or even military trials, would not constitute a precedent for peacetime violations of civil liberties, Lincoln offered one of his piquant metaphors. He could no more believe this, he wrote, than I am able to believe that a man could contract so strong an appetite for emetics during temporary illness as to persist in feeding upon them through the remainder of his healthful life. <laughs> as for the argument that military courts cannot try civilians outside the war zone where civil courts are open, the, the very ruling that the Supreme Court made after the war was over in the Milligan case, um, in, the Lambden, in the Milligan case, uh, as for that argument that, that the military courts cannot try civilians outside the war zone when civil courts are open, Lincoln insisted in 1863 that the whole country was a war zone. 
draft resistance and attacks on enrollment officers and other kinds of uh, sabotage activities took place in the North. And in some places, Copperhead influence was so strong that no jury in a civil court would convict those who were, being, who were tried for sabotaging the war effort. These two letters, especially the first one to the Democrats in New York State in Albany that Lincoln wrote, were enormously effective. They were published in hundreds of northern newspapers. Half a million copies of the letter to New York Democrats were published as a pamphlet. The timing turned out to be fortuitous because within a few days of the publication, Union victories at Gettysburg, Vicksburg, Port Hudson, and in Tennessee lifted the pall of northern gloom and demoralization that had fueled anti-war protests against Lincoln's despotism. These victories also helped convert many who had been skeptical or hostile toward Lincoln's other and even more contentious exercise of war powers, the Emancipation Proclamation. In contrast with his early suspension of habeas corpus, for a year, Lincoln resisted pressures from his own party to move against slavery. Although he was personally and morally opposed to the institution, he feared that premature action for emancipation would alienate northern Democratic supporters of the war effort and drive border slave states into the Confederacy. Nor did Lincoln initially see any way in which he could constitutionally declare emancipation. The Constitution did authorize suspension of the writ of habeas corpus in cases of rebellion, but it did not say anything similar about slavery. When General John C. Fremont issued an order declaring martial law and freeing the slaves of Confederate activists in Missouri on August 30th, 1861, Lincoln rescinded the order because, as he put it, it would alarm our Southern Union friends and turn them against us, perhaps ruin our rather fair prospect for Kentucky. When Lincoln's friend, Orville Browning, senator from Illinois, criticized this revocation of Fremont's order, the president responded that a military commander had no power to confiscate slave property. If a commanding general finds a necessity to seize the farm of a private owner for an encampment, he has the right to do so, because within military necessity, Lincoln wrote. But to say the farm shall no longer belong to the owner or his heirs when the farm is no longer needed for military purposes is unconstitutional. And the same is true of slaves. If the general needs them, he can seize them and use them. But when the need is passed, it is not for him to fix their permanent future condition. Can it be pretended that it is any longer the government of the United States, any government of constitution and laws, wherein a general or a president may make permanent rules of property by proclamation, the date on that letter was ironic, September 22nd, 1861, one year to the day before Lincoln did precisely what he said a general or president could not do, proclaim slaves in rebellious states forever free unless those states returned to the Union by January 1st, 1863. They did not, of course. So on that fateful day, Lincoln proclaimed that 
by virtue of the power in me vested as commander-in-chief and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion, I do order and declare that all persons held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are and henceforward shall be free. Lincoln's apparently radical change of mind about his war powers to emancipate slaves was caused by the escalating scope of the war which convinced him that any measure to weaken the Confederacy and strengthen the Union war effort was justifiable as a military necessity. Lincoln may also have been influenced by a long pamphlet entitled The War Powers of the President and the Legislative Powers of Congress in Relation to Rebellion, Treason, and Slavery, first published in the spring of 1862. Its author was William Whiting, a Boston abolitionist and one of the ablest lawyers in New England. Whiting's pamphlet went through seven editions in little more than a year. On the strength of it, he was appointed solicitor of the War Department. Lincoln's own legal mind grasped Whiting's powerful argument that the laws of war based on long precedent, as Whiting's pamphlet put it, give the president full belligerent rights, including the right to confiscate permanently enemy property being used to wage war against the United States. Slaves were a majority of the labor force sustaining the Confederate war effort, and as property, they were certainly liable to such confiscation. This right of seizure and condemnation is harsh, wrote Whiting, as all the proceedings of war are harsh in the extreme, but is nevertheless lawful. And once the slaves were confiscated, the government surely could not re-enslave them. Their confiscation would be permanent. When General David Hunter, commander of the Union Occupation Forces in the coastal regions of the South Atlantic, had issued an emancipation edict in May 1862, Lincoln had revoked that, as well as his earlier revocation of Fremont's order. But this time, the President's revocation order contained an ominous hint to anyone discerning enough to detect it. Whether at any time, in any case, it shall have become a necessity indispensable to the maintenance of the government to exercise such supposed power, declared Lincoln, are questions which, under my responsibility, I reserve to myself and not to commanders in the field. By July 1862, the president, having reserved that decision to himself, had made the decision. He had concluded that a blow against the Confederate war economy was indispensable to the maintenance of the government. During a carriage ride to attend the funeral of Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton's infant son, Lincoln startled his seatmates in the carriage, Secretary of State William H. Seward and Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells, with the announcement of his decision to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. As Wells later recorded that fateful conversation, Lincoln said that an emancipation policy was forced on us by the rebels themselves. They made war upon the government, and it is our duty to avail ourselves of every necessary measure to maintain the Union. Emancipation, the President went on, is a military necessity, absolutely essential to the preservation of the Union. We must free the slaves or be ourselves subdued. The slaves are undeniably an element of strength to those who have their service. 
and we must decide whether that element should be for us or against us. We want the Army to strike more vigorous blows. The administration must set the Army an example and strike at the heart of the rebellion. Eight days later, Lincoln informed the full cabinet of his intention. Of his intention. On Seward's advice, however, he decided to withhold the proclamation until a Union military victory could give it legitimacy and force. Five days after the Battle of Antietam, which occurred on September 17th, and exactly a year after his disavowal to Browning of any power to do so, Lincoln published his promise to declare the slaves in rebellious states forever free. Eleven months later, Looking back, in another of his expressive public letters, the President defended the constitutionality of his action in words that succinctly summarized William Whiting's treatise on war powers. The Constitution invests its commander-in-chief with the law of war in time of war, Lincoln said. Is there, has there ever been any question that by the law of war property, both of enemies and friends, may be taken when needed. And is it not needed whenever taking it helps us or hurts the enemy? Armies the world over destroy enemies' property when they cannot use it. Civilized belligerents do all in their power to help themselves or hurt the enemy. On another occasion, Lincoln once again used one of his favorite analogies, so graphically familiar in wartime, of a surgeon amputating a limb to save a life. When the crisis comes and the limb must be sacrificed as the only chance of saving the life, no honest man will hesitate. Likewise, Lincoln pointed out, if any local institution threatened the existence of the Union, the executive could not hesitate as to his duty. In our case, the moment came when I felt that slavery must die, that the nation might live. As a war measure, though, the Emancipation Proclamation would cease to have any legal or military force once the war ended. The institution of slavery would still live even if slaves freed by the war remained free. Only a constitutional amendment could abolish slavery and make all slaves forever free. Lincoln ran for re-election in 1864 on a platform endorsing a 13th Amendment to abolish slavery. Such alone, the president wrote in his acceptance of the nomination, can meet and cover all cavils. Ten days after the Senate passed the 13th Amendment in April 1864, Lincoln went to Baltimore for the first time since he had passed incognito through that city three years earlier to avoid an, a suspected assassination plot. Now, in 1864, Maryland was about to abolish slavery by a state constitutional amendment. In one of his best, but least known, short speeches, Lincoln addressed residents of this border states, many of whom, of this border state, many of whom had condemned him as a tyrant who had robbed them of their liberties by arbitrary arrests and detentions of Confederate sympathizers. Lincoln's speech demonstrated his genius for animal metaphors, or in this case a parable, which is an extended metaphor, that illustrated an important point about human affairs. 
The world has never had a good definition of the word liberty, the president said. We all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. For some in that audience, liberty meant the right to own property and slaves and the freedom to support a rebellion to preserve that right. But for others, liberty meant freedom from being owned by another person. The shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat, Lincoln continued, for which the sheep thanks the shepherd as a liberator, while the wolf denounces him for the same act as a destroyer of liberty, especially as the sheep is a black one. Plainly, the sheep and the wolf are not agreed upon a definition of the word liberty. And precisely the same definition prevails today among us human creatures, even in the North, and all, preserving, all professing to love liberty. Hence, we behold the processes by which thousands are daily passing from under the yoke of bondage, hailed by some as the advance of liberty, and bewailed by others as the destruction of all liberty. In this striking fable, the shepherd, Commander-in-Chief Lincoln, wielded, wielded his staff, war powers, to liberate the sheep, slaves, from the predatory wolf, the slave owner. If many of those wolves were killed and others penned up for a time, that was the necessary price to be paid for the freedom of four million sheep and their descendants. Well, I thank you for your attention, and I'll try to answer your questions. Thank you, Professor McPherson, for that wonderful uh, talk. We now will uh, have uh, Q&A. Our custom and practice in the Madison program is to reserve the uh, first few minutes of the Q&A for questions from uh, students. So uh, why don't we just take a moment for people who do have to leave to uh, get out. I'm, I'm so sorry it's uh, so crowded, although, Jim, it's a great tribute to you that we have this wonderful turnout. Uh, okay, so uh, the floor is open. Uh, do any students uh, have questions? Would you like to begin? What I'll uh, do, uh, either I or Professor McPherson will repeat your questions because uh, the uh, lecture and Q&A are being recorded, and in order to pick up the content of the question, we'll have to uh, repeat it since we can't pass the mic through the crowd. Student questions? Yeah, right there. Could I'll repeat I, the question. She said, uh, Jim, will you solve our national problems? <laughs> Can I elaborate on how Lincoln's suspension of uh, or use of the war powers uh, applies to current problems? Well, uh, clearly there's a big difference, and at issue, I think, is uh, a debate about how much difference between an undoubted question of rebellion and civil war here on the soil of the United States from 1861 to 1865. What uh, 
Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes would have, would have called in a completely different context at a later time a clear and present danger to the survival of the country. Uh, and this is, of course, that, of course, was the justification that Lincoln used for what would have undeniably been unconstitutional sus suspension or, or, or violation of civil liberties in peacetime. Uh, applicable today, uh, well, it depends on how one defines what we call the war on terror and the degree of necessity for similar kinds of suspension of civil liberties. If one assumes that the danger, the clear and present danger to the survival of the United States as a nation and our survival as a people is as great as it was during the Civil War, yes, then of course one can defend these suspensions uh, and violations in the same way uh, that Lincoln and others defended them in the Civil War. Uh, if one does not see that danger as being as powerful, as clear, as present, um, then it, it, it becomes, I think, a, a, a debatable issue. Uh, it, in other words, it's not a difference in kind, uh, it's a difference in degree. And of course, differences in degree always leave room for a great deal of argument and controversy, just how, just, just how uh, threatening is the war uh, or the, the terrorist threat uh, to the United States, just how th threatening was uh, Saddam Hussein to United States national interests back in 2003 when the president used the same justification uh, for the invasion of Iraq. These are matters of debate, uh, but if one assumes the dangers are as great today as they were from 1861 to 1865, then one could equate the situation. Good. Student questions? Uh, yes, sir. The question is, uh, the greatest threat is, of Lincoln's actions is the precedent that he creates that might be invoked by other presidents, uh, creating a slippery slope uh, toward um, a, a kind of a, a dictatorship of a, a, a police state. Uh, but that doesn't seem to have happened after the Civil War, or did it happen? And if it did or did not, why? Well, I, it, it did not happen certainly for 80 years after the Civil War, almost 80 years after the Civil War, because the United States was not engaged in anything like uh, the Civil War that represented a threat. During World War I, uh, President Wilson did not issue executive orders violating civil liberties. He did invoke legislation passed by Congress, especially the um, Sedition Act, uh, to and, and several hundred anti-war dissenters, uh, opponents of the war, including Eugene Debs, who was the perennial presidential candidate of the Socialist Party, were in fact jailed for speaking out against uh, American participation in World War I, but this was based on legislation actually passed by Congress. The closest example of what you're talking about was President Franklin D. Roosevelt's executive order interning about 110,000 citizens of Japanese descent, some non-citizens, people of Japanese descent in California and elsewhere on the West Coast. Um, but apart from that, 
until the current situation, uh, there has not, well, I suppose one could say that maybe some of Truman's executive orders uh, during, the, during the McCarthy period might come close to doing that. Maybe the Red Scare arrests after World War I in 1919 during the strikes of that time. There have been other examples, but in most cases, it didn't constitute what, what we usually think of as a slippery slope. That is a step-by-step -step descent uh, into some kind of um, nether world but rather a kind of ad hoc response to various uh, perceived crises, which usually drew on their own contemporary justifications rather than necessarily going back and saying, well, Lincoln did it so I can do it too, although there was some of that. When uh, Justice uh, Stephen Breyer was with us uh, last uh, year, he uh, pointed out one of the great ironies of history that in the Japanese internment case, the internment of the Japanese, was ratified by some of the Supreme Court's leading civil libertarians, uh, Black and Douglas and Frankfurter, and was opposed by J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. question is, uh, Lincoln could get away with uh, some of these acts because Congress wasn't in session or Congress didn't oppose them. How do I think he would have been able to um, carry on these things if Congress opposed it? Uh, well, he would have faced, I think, something of a constitutional crisis, certainly a political crisis, uh, with um, Congress and the president's at, uh, president at odds. Uh, and I think it might well have have um, curbed, his, uh, curbed his style here, but the fact is that Congress was controlled by his own party and most members of his own party supported uh, these actions. Of course, the first session of that special session of Congress in July went ahead and virtually unanimously ratified what he had done. There was unease in Congress uh, about the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, and in fact, the original resolution uh, in July 1861, introduced in the Senate by uh, Senator Henry Wilson of, of Massachusetts, uh, included Lincoln's suspension of the writ of habeas corpus in the, in the retroactive approval by Congress of everything Lincoln had done. But there was enough opposition, not only from Democrats, but from some um, Republicans, uh, including uh, John Sherman of Ohio, who happened to be General William Tecumseh Sherman's brother, some unease and, uh, about Congress ratifying the suspension of, writ, of the writ of habeas corpus, so that that particular provision of this retroactive approval of Lincoln's action was dropped from the, from the resolution before it was finally passed. So clearly, there was a degree of concern within Congress after the conviction of Vallandigham uh, a lot, even some Republicans expressed uh, concern about this. But the opposition was never strong enough. There was never a resolution in, in, in Congress of condemnation of Lincoln's action. Um, the fact that the most prominent critic of Lincoln's action was Roger B. Taney, the author of the Dred Scott decision, uh, sort of seemed to legitimize anything Lincoln did uh, that Taney didn't like. Uh, so I really can't speculate on what would have happened if Congress had, you know, passed some kind of a resolution of censure against Lincoln for his executive usurpation. 
it, it would have created a real problem. There's no question about that, but it never happened. Well, these are terrific questions. Some more. Students? Uh, yes, sir. Mm -hmm. It was well known at the time that Lincoln's only prior elective office to the presidency was, or highest elective office, was as a U.S. congressman. Um, and we know we took a dissenting opinion during the Mexican-American uh, Mexican War. Did he ever write down his constructions of presidential war powers at that time? And if so, was there an evolution in his thought from 1846 to 1861? Lincoln did oppose the Mexican War. Uh, he opposed it on the grounds that uh, it was unjustifiable aggression uh, by the United States against a nation that had not, um, had not uh, uh, violated uh, American interests or American rights. Uh, and he did introduce in Congress a series of resolutions asking President Polk uh, to identify the actual spot where the first attacks by Mexicans on American soldiers took place. Was it on Mexican territory? Uh, against an invading American enemy, or was it on American territory uh, um, carried out by an invading Mexican army? Uh, so clearly Lincoln was opposed to the, to the processes by which that war started. Um, but I don't think that necessarily had implications for his position in, in the Civil War. In a way, what he was saying is that the Mexican War was, on the part of the United States, a war of, an unjustified war of choice. The Civil War was a war forced on him by enemy attack. Uh, and he had, so it made, it, that made all the difference in his mind. I don't think he saw these, I don't think it was a question of evolution of attitude between 1846 and 1861. It was a an entirely different question in 1861 in his mind. Grad students too, high school students, uh, any? <laughs> if, if not, let's uh, throw the floor open. Uh, please. Uh, yes, uh, Professor? Do I find convincing Lincoln's defense or justification <clears throat> of the uh, nationwide uh, suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and especially, <clears throat> excuse me, especially the um, arrest and um, conviction of Vallandigham? There's no question in my mind but that Lincoln would have preferred that Vallandigham's arrest never happened. It put him in a very awkward position. Uh, he knew that the case was weak. Uh, and when he wrote that letter to the Albany Democrats and then to the Ohio Democrats justifying it, uh, I think he had to construct Vallandigham's <coughs> actions as a genuine threat to the, uh, to the army uh, and to the ability of the government to carry on the war. I don't think he was 100% convinced of this, but I think in the context of the time, he felt it necessary to do that. And, and, and while he certainly did not welcome Vallandigham's address, uh, arrest and conviction, once it happened, 
he was going to he was going to use that uh, as a as a means for justifying the overall policy, because Vallandigham was so notorious uh, in the eyes of I would say probably two thirds of the northern people that include not just the Republicans but a lot of the so-called war Democrats as well, um, and so Vallandigham was an easy target or an easy justification uh, for, for, for Lincoln's, uh, for Lincoln's um, uh, defense. As, as for the broader question, uh, the suspension of the writ in the whole country and indeed the authorization of military trials in the whole country, um, I, I should mention, I, I just read Mark Neely's book again called The Fate of Liberties, which is about this question. Uh, and he points out that of maybe 15 to 20,000, nobody knows the exact number of, of people who were arrested and either detained or in some cases tried under the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, only about 250 out of at least 15 to 20,000, only 250 actually took place in the free states. The rest of them all took place in the border states or in the occupied portions of the Confederacy where in most cases uh, there was little doubt that these people were trying to undermine the Union war effort, or they were resisting the draft, or they were trying to escape the draft by going, uh, by leaving their district, or something along those lines. Uh, as for for declaring the whole country a war zone, which the court after the war said was unconstitutional, I think a case can be made that in a civil war uh, where enemy agents or sympathizers with the enemy are actually active in, in the North, uh, that maybe you can, and you can't get convictions in civil courts. Um, if a judge issues a writ uh, or lets out a, an arrested person on bail, uh, he's free to continue his, his efforts to undermine the war effort, or if he's tried and, and there's just one juror out of 12 who uh, refuses to convict, you've got a situation where you can't enforce um, the, the, the effort to win this war. I think you can make a defense of that. Um, and while uh, you can also criticize it on, on the grounds, especially in, as the earlier questioner, the potential for the slippery slope, um, in, I kind of like Lincoln's metaphor that, you know, you take medicine when you're sick, but you don't necessarily take it when you're well. Uh, and maybe that slippery slope wouldn't happen, and in fact did not happen uh, for 80 years after the Civil War. Okay. Uh, now, let me say that uh, even though the official reserve time for students uh, has ended, students are eligible to compete with everybody else. <laughs> so you're, if, you, if something occurred to you afterwards, uh, please do uh, join in. Yes, sir. I'm sorry I don't know your name, but go ahead, please. Okay, the question is, um, most of the military actions this country has been involved in, and especially in the last half century, um, well, ever since World War II, uh, have not involved the declaration of war. So who gets to 
uh, define um, when it's a war and when it's not. Uh, well, clearly, the executive department of the United States government uh, has that power because it's exercised it over and over again, uh, from the Korean War to uh, the Vietnam War to the Gulf War. In many cases, there are congressional actions or actions by some other body. In the case of the Korean War, uh, the United Nations uh, calling upon its member states to enforce the United Nations Charter. That became the justification for the United States action and the action of many other nations in the Korean War. Uh, in the case of the uh, Vietnam War, the Gulf of Tonkin the, the, the resolution. In the case of uh, uh, the, the current war, the resolution uh, by Congress passed in, in uh, early uh, 2003, was used by the President, uh, and also a United Nations resolution, the General Assembly resolution. So clearly there are multiple ways or multiple authorities uh, that declare the existence of hostilities which justifies military action by the uh, executive of the United States uh, government. But I think in all of those cases, the bottom line is it's the president who has made that decision. Uh, and either Congress can impeach him or Congress can pass a war powers resolution as they did, uh, I think, in Nixon administration um, to try to curtail the president's executive power to do that. Or, or the Congress can go along with it, which has, it is, has done in most cases, and which, to project this back to the Civil War, uh, Congress and I think most of the Northern people supported the idea that this was a war. The Supreme Court did do it, even though it was not declared by Congress. Uh, yes, sir. The question is, uh, did Lincoln's um, refusal to uh, obey Tawney's ruling to, uh, to release Merriman on the writ of habeas corpus that Tawney himself had, had uh, issued, did that rise to a level of a conflict between the president and the Supreme Court? No, I don't think so, because Tawney, as I suggested, uh, issued this writ in his capacity as the senior circuit court justice for the circuit in, of which Maryland was a part. It was not a Supreme Court ruling. If it had been a Supreme Court ruling, it might have been another matter when the president defies it. However, we need to remember that at that time in American history, I, I think you suggested this yourself in, in the question, a Supreme, the Supreme Court did not, a Supreme Court ruling, and, and this, this was not a Supreme Court ruling, but even if it had been, did not carry the um, degree of legitimacy and and restraint on the other two branches of government that it does today. Uh, an earlier example of that in 1831 had been when Andrew Jackson 
famously said in the case of uh, Worcester versus Georgia, I think it was, about the, the Cherokee Indians in Georgia, that John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. Uh, Andrew Johnson um, refused to obey that ruling of the Supreme Court. And there was a sense at the time, which no longer exists today, I think, that all three branches of the government had the authority and the power to, do, to uh, interpret the Constitution. And that while the Supreme Court might have had a little bit more authority and a little bit more legitimacy in this regard, the President and the, and the Congress had these kinds of powers as well. So uh, given that context, it wasn't the kind of constitutional, it didn't carry the potential for becoming a kind of constitutional showdown be between President and Court that something like that today might be. Do I think Lincoln would have defied the court if it came to that? I, I, I'm inclined to think he would have, yeah. Well, I have to follow that one up then, Jim. Because in the, uh, in the first inaugural address where he is uh, looking back at Dred Scott, he famously announces that he's going to just reject the doctrine of uh, judicial supremacy and claim his own right. But in uh, rejecting the doctrine of uh, judicial supremacy, he does say that uh, with respect to the particular case, he would consider a decision of the court binding on the parties to that case. So if the president or the United States government were itself a party, wouldn't the logic of his position really require him not in that case to defy the court, even though he rejects judicial supremacy or the power of the court to impose a policy uh, on the national government? Well, he might have taken that route. That is, if it had been the court and not just Tawney. Uh, that had ordered Merriman's release, he might have said, all right, we'll let Merriman go, but I'm still going to suspend yeah. the writ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, you, sir. The question is, uh, there's some uh, evidence that Lincoln even wanted to have uh, Tawney arrested. And could I comment on uh, the, um, the, the quality of that historical evidence? Tawney himself was worried about that. Uh, and rumors did swirl around the Capitol, but I have not seen anything myself. Maybe I can, I, I, I'm certainly subject to correction, that, that Lincoln actually contemplated doing that. He may have thought about it, but there's nothing on paper that I've ever seen that indicates he would have done that or wanted, thought about doing that. Professor McCurry? I'm really struck by how um, contemporary interests in Lincoln's um, extension of the uh, Declaration of Independence focuses on habeas corpus and how dicey his uh, extension of that power was. Okay, the question is, um, what gave Lincoln the most trouble and concern about his actions, whether it be the suspension of the writ or the confiscation of property in the form of slaves or something else? 
I think at first he was very much, uh, I, I think he didn't think twice about the suspension of the writ. Uh, as, and, and, and despite where it is in the Constitution, this was a rebellion and it can be suspended. And, you know, if we wait for Congress to do it, it probably never happened. Uh, and I'm the commander in chief and I can do it. I don't think he gave that too many uh, second thoughts. Emancipation, I think, was more of a problem for him, as especially indicated by that letter to Browning on September 22nd, 1861. But I think, and, and let me just, um, a slight aside here to, so I can come back and make the point. In July 1862, Congress uh, passed the Second Confiscation Act, which actually provided for confiscation by judicial proceedings of slaves owned by men who were in rebellion against the United States. In confiscation, not just of slaves, but of their, all their property. Lincoln threatened to veto that act as unconstitutional unless Congress passed a resolution saying it did not apply to landed property, to real property. Uh, because he said that that would violate the Bill of Attainder Clause in the Constitution, which prohibits the uh, seizure of property in, uh, that can, uh, in, in violation of the heir's right to inherit that property as punishment for treason. Uh, going way back into English history, it's called the Bill of Attainder. And Lincoln said, this would, by, by confiscating landed property, this would violate that. But he then went on to say, and this was at the very time that he was telling cabinet that he was thinking of issuing an Emancipation Proclamation, that those English precedents that... Um, on which the Bill of Attainder Clause of the Constitution was, uh, was based applied only to real property and not to personal property or chattels, and slaves was chattel property. So at some point, and I'm inclined to believe, but there's no sort of smoking gun written evidence uh, to prove this, at some point in the spring or summer of 1862, he was convinced by William Whiting, the guy I mentioned in the lecture, with whom he became quite friendly. Um, that uh, the confiscation of slave property was, was something that could be done um, when the confiscation of real property, by, whether by executive action under the war power or, uh, some other, or in the constitutional amendment, um, whereas confiscation of real property could not. Uh, that that would actually be a violation of the Bill of Attainder. So I think he had a lot of reservations about that, but by the summer of 1862, he had become convinced that he could do this uh, and that it was the right thing to do, it was the necessary thing to do, and once, once, he, uh, that was, once he came to that conviction, he, he didn't look back. Professor Allen? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the question, um, um, or really, I think, an observation, draws a distinction between confiscation, which is the seizure of the value of property, and emancipation, which is uh, a liberation of, of, um, of, of a person from being considered property. And I think that is a, it's a very good distinction and one to keep in mind. And I think it's one that, that Lincoln had come to, to uh, understand as well by that time. Uh, yes, sir. Well, I can give you this. Lincoln has been, uh, has been called by some a masterful politician. If you believe this, can you give us an example or two? Well, uh, I, can give you, I could give you several examples, but uh, let me cite the one that I think is really the most remarkable and extraordinary because no other president in American history has ever done anything of the kind. Lincoln put into his cabinet all four of his principal rivals for the presidential nomination uh, in 1861, at least two of whom thought that they were much better, um, <laughs> much, would make a much better president than Lincoln himself did. At least they thought that at first. Uh, one of them continued to think that, that's Salmon Chase, but Seward, Henry, William Henry Seward com, uh, soon changed his mind. And having done so, he was able to um, create, I won't say harmony in the cabinet, because there was a fair degree of disharmony, but he was able to master that cabinet, to keep them all on the same track, uh, uh, supporting the policies of his administration, especially once those policies had been decided on. Uh, I think that's the mark of an extraordinary political leader, somebody who was able to do that, to take these really strong uh, personalities and powerful egos and harness them f uh, and dominate them uh, the way he did. And, you know, this is the theme of Doris Kearns Goodwin, um, uh, team of rivals. He points all these rivals to his cabinet and then t forges them into a team, not without a lot of Sturm und Drang in the course of the war, <laughs> uh, but he managed to do it. Uh, yes, sir. The question is, uh, was Lincoln out there on his own in his uh, assertion of executive powers, or did he have support from members of his cabinet, uh, members of uh, uh, powerful figures in the Republican Party and the Congress as well? For a lot of his measures, he did have support. Uh, sometimes he had to line up that support. Uh, but some members of his cabinet, Chase being one example, uh, were urging him to move toward emancipation sooner than he, than he, was, uh, than he thought he could. Uh, I, I quoted Orville Browning's, um, uh, or I quoted Lincoln's letter to Browning, but it was in response to um, Browning's statement that uh, he should have supported uh, Fremont's, uh, uh, Fremont's emancipation edict. Uh, so there are, there are people who are urging him to do more than he's done, others who are, uh, who are saying he's going too far. And I, just to get back to the previous question, I think part of his genius was to steer a course between these conflicting and, some, and contrasting, uh, mutually um, opposite, in some cases, kinds of advice he was getting uh, on these issues. And so 
uh, yes, to some degree, almost every contemporary observer, and, and especially um, uh, his two private secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay, um, say that uh, Lincoln would listen to all kinds of conflicting advice, but he would then make up his own mind. And, some, and, and uh, he would not necessarily be swayed uh, by advice. He would listen to it, sift it, but then make up his own mind. So, yes, he's sort of out there on his own when he makes up his own mind, but it's not as if he's the only person who wants to do this. Uh, he, he always manages to line up uh, consent, not necessarily consensus, but support. Okay. Yes, Michael. Hmm. The question is, does the reading of the notes uh, uh, and minutes of the convention indicate uh, what the founders uh, thought about who had the right to suspend the writ of habeas corpus? Well, Tawney and Justice Joseph Story uh, and others uh, certainly thought the, in the founders intended it only for Congress to do this. Um, I'm not sure. I would have to defer to constitutional experts or experts on the, on the Constitutional Convention uh, whether this actually came up. Uh, the only uh, evidence I've seen of it in Tawney's ruling is that it's in the part of, it's in the section, of, uh, article of the Constitution that deals with congressional, uh, with congressional powers. That seems to imply that the founders intended for it to be uh, a power uh, exercised by Congress and not by the President. Uh, on the other hand, I've always been um, at least partly persuaded by Lincoln's statement that this is an emergency power uh, to be used in a crisis uh, and in a war crisis, a rebellion or invasion. Those are war, uh, words describing war and that it makes more sense to think that the founders wanted the commander-in-chief to have this power than Congress. But I'll defer to Robbie or others who know more about the Constitution and its origins than I do to answer that question. Hardly. Uh, yeah, uh, sir, you had your hand up for some time. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, did the Supreme Court rule on the constitutionality of that? Uh, I'm going to defer again. We, we do have an expert on this, uh, Professor Kirsch. Upheld it. Do you, do you remember the vote and who wrote the opinion? The question is, uh, did Congress, did the Supreme Court rule on, on the Sedition Act passed by uh, World War I Congress, and we have an expert over here. He says that co the Supreme Court upheld it. Our, our expert is Professor Ken Kirsch, who, let me pause for commercial advertisement, has written just a wonderful book uh, called Constructing Civil Liberties, which is an account of civil liberties jurisprudence in the 20th century, and it's just uh, terrific. Buy it in hardcover. <laughs> we, uh, you know, I see all these male hands everywhere. Did the ladies have some questions? I'd be happy well, to recognize Stephanie, them. Stephanie had one, yeah, and, and Sarah asked one, I know. But there, I think it looks like a student up here. That'll do. 
I think uh, the question suggests... Question? <laughs> Observation? <laughs> the question uh, suggests that um, maybe sometimes surgeons could be sued for malpractice in removing a healthy limb. Um, uh, in, uh, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how to comment on that. I think... <laughs> I'll, I'll confine my, my professions of expertise to the Civil War and not to necessarily other parts of American history. But in terms of the Civil War, I think Lincoln's uh, uh, amputation of a limb to save a life makes a lot of sense as a metaphor. Uh, the purpose of these metaphors, that one, uh, the others that I uh, mentioned this evening um, and have written about in another context, was to try to make clear to uh, the ordinary person um, some of these somewhat abstruse constitutional arguments. Um, and the, the life and limb one, I think, was very effective in doing that in the Civil War context because most people, I think, had come to the conclusion and they could, they could see it in almost everyday life with the amputation of soldiers uh, limbs when they were shot in the arm or the leg, uh, that that was necessary to save a life. Um, now, maybe some of the Civil War surgeons cut off arms or legs when they didn't need to, uh, but that's a risk, I think, that you have to take. Uh, and the president has to take a, in, in, in Lincoln's case, has to take certain risks, um, and Lincoln was willing to do that, and then says, this is how he justified it. But I... I um, I can, I can readily see uh, your point that um, who makes the decision? Well, the surgeon, or in Lincoln's case, the president makes that decision, and sometimes that decision might turn out to be wrong. I'm afraid we have time for just one more uh, qu question. Yes, you, sir. The question is, um, was Lincoln's construction of presidential war power something that the Supreme Court uh, would have addressed? Uh, and if not, why not? Well, I th my feeling about this, and again, um, some of you are asking me questions that other people in this room are better qualified to, uh, to answer than I am. Um, I think the court is often reluctant in wartime to take up issues that um, might violate the president's, or might see, be seen to violate the president's ability to carry on the war, the armies, as a president, as commander in chief, and the armed forces to carry on the war. I think they're, if they can find a reason to duck it, they will, and in fact they did in Vallandigham's case in 1864, when in what was virtually identical with the Milligan case in terms of the constitutional issues that it raised, the Supreme Court in 1864, right in the middle of the war, uh, avoided that question, evaded it, found a reason not to decide. Whereas two years later, 
almost the same court, minus Chief Justice Taney now, uh, with the new Chief Justice, Salmon Chase, but most of the other members the same, and five out of the uh, nine having been appointed by Lincoln himself. Now that the war is over, the court felt that it could challenge Lincoln's establishment of military trials, of military courts to try civilians in, in northern states, as had been the case with Lambden Milgan and with several other Indiana uh, conspirators, alleged conspirators, uh, who had been convicted in that case. And once the war is over, the court is much readier to challenge a president's authority, but they tend to be quite reluctant to do so during the war itself, and that certainly was the case contrasting Vallandigham with the Milligan case. Before I ask you to uh, join me, or invite you to join me in thanking uh, Professor McPherson for this wonderful uh, evening, I uh, want to announce that our next public event in the Madison program will be Thursday and Friday, November 30th and December 1st. We'll be having a public conference entitled The Public Interest in the Making of Public Policy 1965 to 2005. And the public interest there refers to the well-known uh, journal of public policy, The Public Interest, which was founded by Irving Kristol and Daniel Bell and later edited by Irving Kristol and uh, Nathan Glazer. We'll be looking at the uh, policy uh, influence of the 40-year run of that journal from 1965 to uh, 2005. Uh, Mr. Crystal is uh, uh, intending to uh, attend if he's uh, up to it. He's in his late 80s, but he'd like to be here, and if possible, uh, he will, and Nathan Glazer will uh, definitely be here. That will be uh, in the Computer Science Building, Room 104, again, Thursday uh, the 30th and Friday uh, the 1st. Uh, Thursday afternoon session will begin at uh, 3.30. Again, I want to uh, thank uh, Mr. Vaughn, the founder of our feast this evening, for the Vaughn uh, Lectures. I want to say a special word of thanks to Mrs. Pat McPherson, who's with us this evening, for lending us her eminent husband uh, for the evening. We really appreciate that. And above all, of course, I want to thank Professor James McPherson for this wonderful <laughs>